Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on our new home at New Dissident Radio. We're now in the month of Meaty May. For our first Meaty May program, we'll be talking to Victoria Block, the West Los Angeles Santa Monica Weston A. Price chapter leader. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. A public school in the Flushing region of the New York Borough, Queens, will be serving all vegan food for their breakfast and lunch. Chancellor Dennis Walcott says this is to encourage the students to eat healthier. Walcott has it all wrong with his approach to a 100% vegan diet. He's replacing poultry with black beans, tofu, and falafel. I'm sure none of these legumes are soaked, sprouted, or fermented. And is the soy used for the tofu even non-GMO? Chancellor Walcott, you need to listen to what Meaty May is all about, and you'll learn there's a better approach to teaching children about eating healthy. Next, the Washington State Legislature didn't take any action to decide whether GMOs should be labeled, so it will be up to the voters to decide. The ballot will be similar in language to California's Prop 37. Disappointing that the state legislature in Washington was unable to pass a bill labeling GMOs, Let's hope the voters make the right decision this time when it comes to labeling these frankenfoods. Also, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention released a new report revealing that added sugars make up 13% of the calorie intake for American adults. The report also says that 33% of the added sugars come from drinks. This is more news on what's wrong with the standard American diet. Sugars are at best okay in extreme moderation, and cutting out sugary drinks is one of the easiest ways to reduce your intake. And finally, the Food and Drug Administration says it's going to investigate the safety of added caffeine and the effects it has on children and teenagers. The FDA plans this investigation just as Wrigley's is about to introduce Alert Energy Gum, where one piece of gum will contain an amount of caffeine equal to half a cup of coffee. The FDA Deputy Commissioner Michael Taylor says he also plans to look into caffeine present in other products such as energy drinks, candy, and chips. While I'm glad the FDA is looking into caffeine being present in foods, the products it's found in are all things you should already not be eating. And now for the main course. This is the first show of Meaty May. Meaty May isn't just about loving meat because it tastes great, but also about educating the public why properly sourced meat is good for your health. It's also about letting people know how sustainable meat is actually good for the environment as it replenishes our grasslands. And one of the best ways to learn more about the health and environmental benefits of meat is getting involved with a local Weston A. Price chapter. There are chapters all over the country, all over the world even. If your area doesn't have a chapter, you can always start one. Western Price chapters often have monthly meetings with great speakers to learn more as to what they're about. You can also meet great like-minded people that help you with things such as what farmer to buy the best meats from and sharing great recipes for nutrient-dense foods. 
Here to talk with me about Meaty May and local Weston A. Price chapters is Victoria Block, the chapter leader for the long-running West LA, Santa Monica, Western Price chapter. Victoria, glad we're finally able to get you on the show. I am delighted to be here, Aaron. It's been great what you've done because now you have, I think, the longest-running Western Price chapter. I don't know for sure that it's the longest, but it's certainly one of them. At the when we had the Western Price conference last November, and the chapter leaders meeting that kicks off the event, they had people set down as their as their term of service as chapter leaders expired, and I was the longest woman standing. So it's been 13 years. So it's certainly up there. When Sally Fallon, who started the Sally Fallon Morell, who started the foundation, sent out the letter requesting if requesting people to start chapters. It took me about five minutes to say this has changed my life and I want to support whatever I can. So that was it. Oh, wow. So how would you found out about the Weston A. Price Foundation pretty much close to when it had started? It was. It was. It was one of those wonderful synchronicities, since I don't believe in coincidence, but it was just one of those nice synchronicities. I was listening to a feed of radio station KPFA out of Berkeley, that was running on KPFK, the local affiliate. And there was a show called Your Own Health and Fitness that's still going on. And she was interviewing Sally Fallon. And I happened to tune in. I was still macrobiotic at that point, although starting to explore some other ways of being. I think I'd read Ron Schmidt's book, Yeah, Traditional Foods Are Your Best Medicine, by that point. So I was starting to get open to raw milk and thinking about eating meat again, which had been seven years. So Sally was there, and the way she put things together made so much sense. I went total Berlitz full immersion. I stopped eating grains. I stopped eating beans. I found grass-fed meat. I bought raw milk. I think the first time I got hold of a pint of raw cream, I literally chugged the whole thing at one time, thinking that I was only going to have a little taste. That's how much my body was craving the good fats. So that's how I found out about Sally. Ordered her book, Nourishing Traditions, on Amazon. And there was a little tear-out card in the back saying, join the foundation that she was just starting. So I did. And that was that. I always have to love when I hear that someone discovered it through radio, since after all, that's what I do. And always the hope that my show and having guests such as you and other people will get more people involved with it. Now, I think a lot of our listeners will know what the macrobiotic diet is, but for those that don't, explain. It's basically centered in a traditional Japanese diet, and it was there were a couple of major people who brought it to the United States. Um, Osawa, George Osawa, was one of the main ones. There were others along the way, but it was the idea that you could achieve a physical and spiritual balance by eating foods that are appropriately balanced in terms of yin, which is expansive, female energy, moon, and all of that, or yang, which is more concentrated male sunlight kind of energy. So the whole macrobiotic system puts foods on a scale from yin to yang, and then eating more towards the center of that, which is brown rice, root vegetables, uh, leafy green vegetables, not not sweets, which are extremely yin, not animal foods, which are extremely yang. So it's basically a plant-based, grain, grain bean and vegetable-based diet. And there's some other things that go into it, but that would be the basics. And what were some of the problems they experienced while on the macrobiotic diet? Well, I did like the food, I have to say. I'm a good enough cook that the food was was delicious. But 
the problems were my digestion went to hell in a handbasket. I was bloated constantly. I had the worst gas since Bhopal. I had I broke out constantly. My hair was limp. My nails broke. I was trying to get pregnant at the time and had four miscarriages over the course of a year and a half. It was it was just miserable. So when I realized, and I kept trying to do it harder, like thinking, well, I'll just refine the diet. I'll do it more perfectly. Because if I'm having problems, there's nothing wrong with the diet. I was reading John Robbins' book that came out. This was the 80s. So John Robbins' Diet for a New America came out in, what, 84, 84, 85. And I dove onto that like white on rice and went to vegan conventions because the vegan movement was just starting. And nothing was working. I was still miserable. And it was in the middle of all of that that I, I heard Sally on the radio. And the blinders fell off. So, yeah, but the macrobiotic diet for me was not, was not good. I think for some people, like all diets that are plant-based, it can be a good cleansing diet. It's not quite as depleting as a purely vegetable-based diet or a purely fruit-based diet. Because at least you're getting some kind of complex carbs, some kind of combined protein from the grains and beans, but it's still a very hard diet to digest. So anybody with compromised digestion or anybody that is having any kind of physical issues, it, it's one of those things that you could love for a while and then realize that you need to move on. And of course, like all plant-based diets, it's deficient in things like B12, which is critical, and I believed that I was getting B12 from fermented foods like tempeh, except that they're produced under such sanitary conditions that there's no B12 anywhere around. And other nutrients like A and D that don't really, don't really come in plant-based foods. You can get foods that might turn into A, like beta-carotene, but it takes a lot of beta-carotene and a lot of fat to make the conversion, and even then, a lot of people don't do it successfully. So I was deficient and a lot of nutrients on that diet. And I think that's where many of the issues came from. That's a good point they bring up about B12, that it's not readily available in plant foods the way it is in animal foods. And the other thing about even the ones that it is available in, what I've heard is that actually it makes us crave more B12. Well, and it's not even real B12. Like I, I remember when I, was, when I was following a plant-based diet, I understood that blue-green algae was a source of B12. And it's not. It's actually a kind of mirror image at the molecular level. It looks like B12 if you reversed B12, but the body doesn't absorb it in the same way. So you're not really getting it. And I think maybe the reason then, I haven't heard what you were just talking about, but perhaps the reason that your body would crave more of it is that it isn't well absorbed. So that little taste for your body just says, oh, I remember that. I need a lot more of that. So maybe that's why. It was something that I had heard Kayla Daniels talk about back in March at the Western Price Regional Conference in Detroit on her presentation about vegetarian myths. She had mentioned that. And going with kind of vegetarian myths and a big thing of what meaty may is, is letting people know that our bodies aren't meant to just handle plants because the thing is, these animals that only eat plants, herbivores, they all have multiple stomachs. We don't. So I think for me, that's probably one of the strongest, if not the strongest argument I've heard that we need animals as well as plants. It really is. I mean, their guts are designed to ferment their 
food. And our guts are not designed to ferment our food. We have one stomach, like you say. And we are omnivores. We are not herbivores. And it's a, it's a huge difference. Omni means everything. And that's how we evolved. That's how we got our wonderful big brains that we are now using to tell ourselves that we should eat vegetables instead. And it's just silly. It is. We're able to have conversation we're having because of the animal products that we've eaten from long periods of time. And that's a big thing about Dr. Price's studies that make them different from studies such as these vegan studies like the Chai study. Ones that take place over a couple of months to even 10 years, Dr. Price's studies were about cultures from their beginning, uh, not just around the time that he was there. Oh, I know. It was... It's one of the most compelling things to me about, about Dr. Price's work. And I think one of the most attractive things to me as, as somebody in, passionately interested in health and nutrition was the quality, the quality of the research where he didn't go on a theory and said, well, let me test this out in the lab and see what happens if I feed test animals oat bran. He actually went out and looked at, found people who were already healthy and then said, okay, guys, what do you eat? and learned that way. So he learned in context and he learned what people really did. And those people, like you say, had done that diet for generations or followed their diet for generations upon generations of healthy, healthy reproduction, healthy, no, no long-term diseases, etc. And my understanding is that even he very much wanted to find a vegetarian culture when he was doing his research. He liked the idea. But he didn't find any. So that was something he had to let go of as an, as an ideal. Yes, I'd heard that too. I'd heard before he went on studies, he was very pro-strict vegetarian. And in fact, that was his expectation when traveling was he was going to find that all of these vegetarian cultures were the healthiest ones. But what happened was he didn't really find any indigenous vegetarian cultures. I mean, even right. the Indian culture... That was the closest thing, but only parts of India were vegetarian. I mean, they eat a lot of lamb in India. And the thing with India is you had a certain group of people that they ate only plants while they were there. But the thing was, they thought they were eating only plants. They were actually getting a lot of animals from the plants being poorly washed. And so their eggs and their larvae were getting in there. And when they moved to England and they ate yes. just plants, they developed anemia. Exactly. Exactly, because hygiene, hygiene was definitely an issue in that regard. I read, the, I read that same thing, yes, because the Hindus, certainly because of their religious beliefs, do not, do not eat animal products other than milk. So they do, get, they do get milk, they do get ghee, you know, clarified butter. So they do get some animal foods, but certainly no meat, whereas the Mughals in the northern part of India, who were different religious bases, they were, and I've, I've read studies that showed that their health markers overall were much better than the, the purely vegetarian culture in the south of India. So, yeah, exactly. I read that about the Indian culture from, it was, I believe, Stephen Burns, he was Weston Price yep. member, and he had that great article, it was like the 14 vegetarian myths, which you can find somewhere on the website, westonaprice.org, yep. and I thought it's that was there. a great article. So certainly... There's a lot of, I think, great resources to learn about the benefits of why we should eat meat. So obviously, Dr. Weston Price in his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, that's a great book. And Sally Fallon with the Weston A. Price Foundation, I mean, she's done a wonderful job. And she has a series of books, Nourishing Traditions, Eat Fat, Lose Fat. Those are good books. 
What are some other resources that you would recommend for people to learn about the benefits of animal products? There's a, a wonderful uh, MD named Diana Schwartzwein, who was, she's no longer practicing. She's devoted her time to writing and education, but she's up in the, the Santa Barbara area. But she's got a, a fabulous book called The Schwartzwein Principle, and it's S-C-H-W-A-R-Z-V-E-I-N. That, and she has some subsequent books that sort of develop it. But the basic you can get out of that one book, and she covers how treating diabetes, treating heart disease, dealing with weight issues, all of that, work better with a, a balanced diet that includes animal foods. So, and the, the amount of protein that we really need for healing and recovery, that's a wonderful book. Then other ones... Actually, one of my recent favorites in the last couple of years has been Lear Keith's The Vegetarian yes. Myth. That is, that's a spectacular book because, and to me it's very powerful because she was a lifelong, decades-long vegan, like completely, no animal foods whatsoever, no eggs, no dairy, not even non-slaughter products, but just no animal foods, and the, health, the serious health consequences that she suffered as a result and her understanding of the fact that our bodies are built to do best with animal foods. So not the thing that always gets me, let me just do a little side rant here, sure. <laughs> which is when, when people talk about Western Price from a critical point of view, say somebody is, is a committed vegan or a committed vegetarian, and they say, all you talk about is meat. And that's not accurate. It's, it's really not. I think it gets emphasized because at this point in time, it's so controversial suddenly, for the first time ever in the history of man. It's controversial whether we eat meat or not. But we talk about the guidelines include plenty of vegetables, fermented vegetables, fruits, grains, beans, a whole host of products. Again, omnivores. We eat plant foods. We eat animal foods. We eat a complete range. It's a, it's a wide diet. It's not a narrow diet where we're simply eating only meat. It just happens to be the thing that people seem to focus on because, like I say, it's more controversial in this day and age. So that was my side rant. I'm done now. Well, I like that you bring that up because I think there actually are a number of reasons that vegans, even if they may not agree with one of, I mean, it is certainly a part of Weston Price about the benefits of saturated fats. There are, I think, a lot of things they can like about it. For one, we're one of the biggest fighters for removing GMOs and getting the GMOs that are out there labeled. So there's an issue that I think will involve them. And also the sister organization, the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, fighting for the rights of small farmers. And I think there are a lot of issues within the Weston Price Foundation that involve everyone. I, I totally agree. And with all of that, we are definitely supporting the humane treatment of animals. We are as, as adamantly opposed to confinement, to CAFO farming, to confined, confined animal feedlots or concentrated feedlots as any vegan could ever be. So we do not want animals to suffer, to be raised badly, to be fed on unnatural diets that they never experienced in the history of mankind. And in fact, doing so is, is destroying agriculture in so many ways by creating these horribly wasteful cruel, just cesspools of, of bad animal husbandry. Completely agree. We agree with the vegans that the factory farming is destroying the environment. But I mean, you know, a thing that we're about is letting people know that there are ways which animals are humanely raised and also 
that these farms where they do the mixed farming is actually good for our environment. Farms such as Joel Salatin's Polyface Farm, where he started raising animals where nothing could grow. And by having the chickens and the cows and the pigs there, they're providing fertilizer, which get plants to grow again. And there are farms really all over the country that have that method of the crop rotation. In fact, one of them is one that's just a couple hours north of us is Day Day's Farm. It's a great one. And in fact, next weekend, there's going to be a great event there, which I love that it's in May. It, I think, goes along very well with my meaty May. It's perfect timing. Yeah. You'll be there as well as some other Western Price members from the L.A. area, a couple from the Pasadena chapter. From Pasadena, exactly. Yeah. So tell the listeners a little more about this event that's going on next weekend. Well, it's a wonderful thing that he's done for the last few years which is John De Bruin, who's the, the owner and rancher at, uh, at Day Day's Best Beef Ever, where he also raises chickens, and he's, he started raising pigs again this year. But he has a beautiful grass-based farm, and he's very much following the inspiration of Joel Salatin's polyface farms that you just mentioned and bringing it to the West Coast. So he opens it up to let people see what goes on in a real grass-based, sustainable enterprise that raises animals, that raises cattle for beef humanely, and on their native diet of grass where they're fed no grains, they're not fed anything that nature didn't intend them to eat, and they're treated well, and where chickens follow behind the, behind the cows so they can depathogenize the cow patties as they're formed and make beautiful healthy eggs at the same time, and so on and so on. So the open house is designed to literally open up his house to the public and the animal's house to the public and do educational seminars. I'll be talking about the Weston Price diet and its advantages. There are going to be cooking classes in making broth and making healthful desserts and all kinds of lovely things. There'll be a class in raising chickens at home, there'll be the Santa Barbara Western Prize chapter leader. Katie Falbo is going to be there. I'll be there. Elena Luther from Pasadena. And, of course, they'll be serving delicious grass-fed burgers to people that come. So it's a wonderful opportunity if you have not been on a farm and you're in the Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, Central Valley area. What a fabulous opportunity to get to see how it's done and enjoy meeting other people who are interested in this way of life. And also, if you're not familiar with it, what a great way to get started and learn more, too. I think visiting farms is one of the most important things. As I've gotten more involved with this, I've made a promise that I would actually visit more farms. And I visited my first one. It was a couple months ago. I got to see the Primal Pastures Farm. It's a new farm in Temecula that has chickens. And they're looking at getting into raising other animals, such as livestock. And so uh, this will be my first one at Day Days, which, I mean, I'm really looking forward to because... It has a great lineup of speakers, like you said, the Santa Barbara chapter leader, Katie Falbo, Elena Luther. I'd also add Monica Ford is going to be speaking with Elena. Right, right, right. right. Yes. Monica Ford does the Real Food Devote and works for Organic Pastures. They're going to be talking about making broth, and I think that's going to be a great one. And Monica Ford had told me about the day days that they're going to start selling pork. She had just told me that when I was at the Hub a couple of weeks ago. Um, Do you know when they're going to start releasing the best pork ever? They've already had some. They sold some. I was able to score some some leaf lard from them a couple of weeks ago. If if anybody doesn't know what leaf lard is, lard is pig fat, of course, but the fat comes from different parts of of the animal. So the fat around the kidneys is called leaf lard, and it's the most delicate 
And that is what, if you're going to be making pies or you're going to be making pastries of any kind or biscuits, that is the very loveliest to work with. So anyway, so they sold out of the first batch of pork in a heartbeat. So they'll be getting more as the season goes by and as they get their breeding stock going and it'll, it's a happening thing. Right. I think Monica was telling me she tastes some of the pork and I hear they're serving homemade potato chips. Are these homemade potato chips made with the lard? As far as I know, well, they could be made with lard or tallow, and I don't know which they'll be using. But potato chips are amazing, cooked in either fat. And it's it's funny because when you cook potato chips or French fries or whatever in animal fats as opposed to vegetable fats, they actually have less, they're less greasy than they are when cooked. The fat, it tends to actually seal the, the vegetable rather than soaking in. So ironically, you actually end up with less fat in the in the chips or whatever than you do if you cook them in what we now think of as the normal way with uh, vegetable oil. It One is. of those little ironies. And it's just, it's so hard to find any that are cooked in beef tallow or lard. I mean, pretty much all the potato chips and almost all the restaurants have stopped that. And a lot of people don't even realize that they used to cook them in lard. I think some people still think they are cooked in lard. But I've reminded people about how McDonald's used to cook theirs in French fries, and typically the reaction I get is, oh, is that why their fries used to taste so much better? Exactly. And then and then Center for Science and the Public Interest got, got wind of it in that whole thing about fats, and they got on the fat bandwagon or the anti-fat bandwagon and persuaded McDonald's to get rid of the beef tallow. So now they have to do vegetable oil, which, of course, is partially hydrogenated, and they add a flavoring that makes it taste like their fries used to taste, which was delicious because they were fried in tallow. So it's pretty ironic. Oh, and the Center for Science and Public Interest, I mean, they've changed their positions on things like the whole thing with trans fats, where for a while they were telling movie theaters to not be cooking the popcorn in coconut oil. They were saying it was bad and to instead fry in these trans fat oils. Then later they changed their position saying, oh, no, trans fats are bad, too. Exactly. They had to backpedal in a hurry on that one. And of course, coconut oil is now the, the darling of the whole vegetable health food world, including including the Western price world. It's a fabulous fat. It always was. It's pretty much saved the missionaries that, that started eating it when they went down to the South Seas, kept them from getting virally based diseases and so on, antimicrobial and antiviral. And it's a darn good fat. And yes, it is more saturated than beef fat. Yeah. So go figure. Yeah. And yet it's really healthy. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's also a good thing to cook potato chips and French fries. Did you get a chance to taste some of those uh, Jackson's Honest potato chips at the conference last oh, November? Oh, yes. Oh, I did. I bought bags for the trip home. And we, oh, me my, too. <laughs> yeah. And our, our, the people in, my, in our car definitely were happily munching all the way down to Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, Megan's great. I've had her on my show. And then I bought bags back when I had an Oscar party in March and told Megan, and she actually had said to me that, in addition to my party, those were actually the ones that were served in the green room for the Oscars. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. It is. So, I mean, I think uh, it's great what that company's doing. I mean, that finally we'll be able to have some saturated fat uh, potato chips on the market soon. And, I mean, I think we are seeing more of that. We're, we're slightly seeing a change. They have a couple of good restaurants in L.A. now that are cooking them in beef towel or lard. There's the Plan Chef, which... I just heard it's expanding to have one somewhere in like more centrally located in LA, like Fairfax or Hollywood, I think. And then I hear, I hear one downtown, which I love because that'll be like 10 minutes from my house. 
Well, exactly. Well, it's sort of like Burger Lounge, you know, that opened up. Oh, yeah. The West Side after Lounge. They started downtown and now they're on the West Side in Santa Monica. And they're awesome. Oh, they're great. Yeah. Well, that was the first guest that we had on the show was the general manager from Burger Lounge. And I love them because they have the grass fed beef and all exactly. these local ingredients for their burgers, as well as their fries are cooked in a peanut oil, which I mean, I don't think peanut oil is as good as a coconut or a beef tallow, but certainly it's a big well, step up from the canola oil and the soy oh, oil. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, yes, exactly. So like there's a wonderful French fry vendor at the, at the Mar Vista market, farmer's market where I shop locally and they cook their French fries in peanut oil. So they, they made a compromise. They know they would prefer to cook them in beef tallow, but they know that they would, there are too many people who would not be comfortable eating them. So they compromised and went with an omega-6 fat, not ideal, but you know what? At least it's a heck of a lot better, like you say, than canola oil or safflower oil or any of those that get destroyed by heat. Ugh. It is better. I mean, because like you said, it's hard to reach to the vegetarian and vegan crowd by cooking in beef tallow. And unfortunately, there's a problem with coconut oil being very expensive because I know that some of them that cook in peanut oil, they like to use coconut, but the price of it. So certainly peanut oil is good. And I love the, uh, the Marvista farmer's market too, because there they also have the farmhouse kitchen, Jacob Vainstock's yes. thing. And I love to have the deal. Actually, you get the farmhouse burger and you get a discount off on their French fries. So, I mean, that's like the perfect, you know, uh, American comfort food meal done traditionally. Oh, it is. And then you get the, the homemade ke ketchup, the homemade mustard, that are made by, by local chefs also, which is a whole different level of quality and taste. And it's it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Yes, and the sourdough buns that are cooked on, or if, if you don't do the grains, you can get it on a bowl of greens. So all around, I mean, I can't think of a more sustainable, healthy burger than what Farmhouse Kitchen has. That's because there isn't one. So, yeah. I agree. So uh, we'll talk more about meaty may and what you can learn about the advantages of meat in terms of health and in terms of the environment as well as more information about getting involved with local west Nate price chapters but first gotta take a word from our sponsors to your health sprouted flour company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs we have more than 34 sprouted products hundreds of recipes and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea Estates Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, 
hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. I'm talking with Victoria Block. Victoria is the chapter leader of the long-running West Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Weston A. Price chapter. And so for the break, we were getting into the advantages of grass-fed meat in terms of its health and also how it's replenishing our grasslands, actually. And the best way, really, to learn more about all of this is the Weston A. Price Foundation because what it does is it really has an operation where it applies locally of wherever you live, you can get involved and learn about it from like-minded people that live in your area. So, Victoria, tell us a little bit more about how your chapter operates. Well, we have had for a long time, we had a little hiatus a few years ago, but we pretty much meet once every month at the most two months. We have, so our meetings have covered everything from what I call movie night, where we show either related movies like Farmageddon or videos from the Western Prize Conference. I've had authors in to speak. The woman who wrote uh, City Chicks about urban chicken, about raising urban chickens came to speak. We've had health practitioners. I've done talks on various topics of interest. I just did a talk last month on cholesterol. We have potlucks. We've had food demos. Monica Ford and I and other people have gathered to teach hands-on classes making sauerkraut or kimchi or other fermented foods. So we mix it up. And of course, it's open to the public. And we've been meeting recently at the Unurban Cafe in Santa Monica. And that looks like it's going to be our home for a while to come. It's central. It's got good parking. It's got a great uh, post-60s vibe. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful new home for us for the last several months. And your talk last month on cholesterol, the first of the forbidden food talks, I mean, that was great. And certainly that is a very important topic to bring up about the whole myth of cholesterol because you look back at the origins of it and you realize that it is totally bogus, as Dr. Michael Eads had said. Yes, indeed it is. Just silly. And it's, and it's, but it's made a lot of money for a lot of people. So it's been useful in that regard if, if you regard healthcare as being an important money-making vehicle for pharmaceutical companies and people who rely on keeping people scared about real food. It is. One of the biggest money-makers in the whole thing has been the statins, which is such a scary thing. And I recommend anyone that wants to learn more about statins to watch the documentary Statin Nation. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. That's really well done and very informative. And so your cholesterol talk was the first of several ones you're going to do on forbidden foods. What are some of the other forbidden food talks that you're looking at doing for the meetings? Well, I, the next one is going to be on salt because to me, salt has been one of the, it's like saturated fat, it's been demonized in public health initiatives who are saying that the way to make sure that we don't raise our blood pressure or that we lower it if it's too high is to, is to eliminate salt as much as possible or keep it in as minimal an amount as, as, uh, as we can. And it's simply not true. There's no science to support it. I mean, just for a little tidbit, if you eliminate, there's some people in the population, in fact, that their blood pressure even goes up if they don't get sufficient salt. So that's about 40% of the population. So who are you... Even the people that their blood pressure is slightly modified by salt will only see a drop of five milligrams in their pressure. 
in their systolic pressure when they, if they give up salt completely. And since most people who have dangerously high levels of blood pressure are dealing with 20, 30, and 40 points up, so they've ruined their diet, they've made themselves miserable, they've eliminated salt, which is valuable for a whole host of enzymatic processes in the body for a mere five-point reduction. And there's so many other ways to address the situation. So salt to me is, is an absolute forbidden foods. And then I am going to talk about animal foods in general, because we talked about the cholesterol issue, but there in this day and age, there are so many issues as we've been talking about with the emotional component of it or the spiritual component of it, many of which I, I bought hook, line, and sinker myself for years. So I understand the point of view. It's simply misguided. So I do want to address that as well in a specific talk. And then I'll see where it goes from there. But those are the ones to start with. I like all of those. I mean, those are all important ones to me too. So I'd like to talk more about the ones that you'd mentioned that are upcoming. First, the salt. Um, that was the thing that really uh, won me over with the West Nate Price Foundation because in addition to beef being my favorite food, I mean, salt <laughs> may be my second favorite food. Um, I've actually said... Think of the saltiest thing you've ever eaten. I bet it's not salty enough for me. <laughs> so you're in line with the Japanese. The Japanese have the, the largest salt consumption of anybody in the world. I mean, they're up to like 30 grams a day or so on a, on a good day. I am, yeah. I mean, I just, I love salt on things. And so I love learning that, that if, if it's the right salt, the sea salt. And I think one of the most important things in learning about the benefits of salt is the works of Dr. Maynard Murray. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I am. Fascinating, fascinating person and definitely well worth Googling and looking up. Right. And I think similar with Dr. Price, where it goes back to the history of cultures and, and what we've eaten, Dr. Murray's stuff goes back the same way too, and that he brings up how we all of our vegetables, they used to grow underwater where there was lots of salt. So we're not getting these salts that we had in the beginning when we grew our vegetables underwater. Well, and there's, there's the, the farming practice of adding, of introducing good quality sea salt to the fields as a way of, of restoring the health of the soil. So that very much reflects that, that fact. Right, and very much the best person, I think, to learn about that is Robert Kane of Sea Agri. He's often at the Weston Price International Conferences with his product and yeah, if you go back to some of my older shows, I, I did an interview with him, and he's very much an expert on all of Dr. Maynard Murray's studies, and the, very much the sea agri business totally applies the principles of Dr. Murray. Yeah, it's really it's it's good. I've got I've got a sea salt here. The other person that interests me is a guy named Mort Satan, S A Satin S A T I N, who spoke at the Western Price Conference. Not this last one but the prior one and he's worked for F the food and agriculture organization at very at very high level so he's he actually introduced uh, aseptic coconut water to the market he figured out how to to get coconut water and to be able to store it in such a way that you could get the nutritive benefits from it anyway really interesting guy very lively and he is the i believe he's the founder but he's certainly a spokesperson for the salt institute so he's done a tremendous amount of research. And just like Denise Minger, one of my favorite bloggers, talks about and debunks large chunks of the China study, he also debunks large chunks of Intersalt, which is the, the largest study done on salt, factoring in a whole host of populations. 
And he talks about the outliers that are included, which the populations that have almost no salt consumption. And yes, they have extraordinarily low blood pressure, but they also die before the age of 30. So maybe not the population that you really need to include when you're making public health recommendations for the rest of the world. Interesting guy. So oh, he goes under the handle Salt Guru, and you can actually watch videos of his on, uh, on YouTube, which are very entertaining, but full of information. I love it. I just learned about it. I actually hadn't known about that before, but I just looked it up. For people that want to learn more about it, there's a website, saltinstitute.org, which I'm sold on it. I'd love to hear more about what they have to say. So certainly that is a good topic of salt. I think another myth that I like debunking is myths about the Dairy Institute. You said you're going to do one on other animal products. Will dairy be part of that? Oh, absolutely. Including including raw dairy. Yes, of course, of course raw dairy. Usually. Hugely controversial, but just dairy in general, because there's so many books out there about how dreadful dairy products are for you. And unfortunately, they're all, of course, based on milk that's raised from confinement animals and fed grain and not put on grass and all and pasteurized. So, of course, it's not good for you. Hello. But that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that all milk is bad because bad milk is bad. It's kind of silly. But much of the information we get today from mainstream sources does seem to be kind of silly. It does. And there are good pasteurized dairies that certainly have better conditions. And if you're in a state where raw milk is illegal, it's good to go for. But I think if you look at the practices of the raw dairy, it's very much also related with debunking all the dairy myths. The example I use is Mark McAfee's Organic Pastures. The practices that he does contradict all of these vegan arguments about what the dairy industry does. Mark McAfee naturally breeds the cows. He doesn't sell veal from his cows. His cows get to live a long life. So all these arguments about cruelty are debunked with organic pastures and with, I'm sure, with other raw dairies too, like Clara Vale, your family cow, Miller Farms, you know, just these small family farms raising cows. And even Sam Benoit, like when you were talking about well-done, well-done pasteurized dairy companies, companies that have chosen not to go the, the, the raw route but still raise cows on grass and raise them humanely. And as you say, they're not dead within a year and a half of their being starting to melt because they're so pumped full of hormones and other horrible things. So yeah, you can do it right. Yeah, and then there's a thing really with any dairy, just by the idea of raising dairy, of why it's not wrong, because the argument we often hear is that we're taking the milk away from the baby calves, but that is just, it's a misunderstanding oh, so of, of what yeah. dairy is, because the thing is, cows have been so domestic domesticated that they make more milk than the babies can handle. There's also a time when the babies don't need the milk anymore and we have to do something with it. Right. And the cows will just like, just honestly, like human mothers, if, they're, if their baby is, is starting to wean, the breasts get swollen and painful and you've got to do something with the milk there. So what are you going to do? So of course, and there's the symbiosis, which you mentioned. The fact is that we've, we've, enabled cows to live longer, healthier lives by raising them and by, by forming this harmonious relationship called farming, just like dogs started as, as wolves and became our friends and learned to hunt with, with men. So too, I think cows and other domestic animals have had a long and beautiful history of thriving under our care. So it's a shame that we've kind of been screwing it up lately with some bad farming practices. But again, 
if you go back to the origins of it, then you get to something that's quite helpful and quite quite useful for the animal as well as for us. Right. It's all about raising them in the most humane way. And I think in turn, that's what makes raw milk safe to drink. Yes, it does. And it can be, It's and again, like anything else, just because something can present problems doesn't mean it always will. It means you have to follow certain procedures. You have to take care with how you produce things if you're going to produce a raw dairy product as opposed to a pasteurized one. So, but if you take that care, then you've got something spectacular. So, too much silliness. If you look at the care that these farms like Organic Pastures and Clairvale, I think they have more care for their animals than any pasteurized dairy. No pasteurized dairy raises them in as clean conditions as they do. And the fact that also... They do inspections of the cows before the FDA comes out to get them. They make sure. Because they actually care about the animals they're caring for. They're not just doing it as a commodity product. So I couldn't agree more. They're, they're a, a daily demonstration of how it can be done. And honestly, how it really should be done. It's like, why should we settle? Why should anybody settle for less than that? They care, and so that makes actually the best dairy of all is when raw dairy is done completely right. The other thing to bring up is it's best to have raw dairy to be legal because the problem is when you make it illegal and people want to get it, then they're going to be going to these dairies where the practices aren't regulated in any way. So we are the safest for those of us who want raw dairy when it is legal. Yes. I mean, it's one of the things that I really admire about Mark McAfee is that he cared enough about other dairy farmers and about the availability of raw milk for everybody who wants to have it, that he helped create the Raw Milk Institute, which specifically exists to train farmers in raising dairy cattle and producing raw milk cleanly and safely. And he's gotten through his first year of certifying a few farms, and he's got more online that he's working with as we speak, so that they'll be doing it the right way. And in such a way that their animals are healthy, that the milk they produce is healthy, and all of that. And you're right, by legalizing it, it's something Michael Schmidt up in Canada has talked about time and time again. When you drive it underground, people that are uneducated or that may not know the nuances, say they're coming from conventional dairy, where everything's going to be pasteurized within five minutes, but they may not know the extra steps that you need to make sure that everything is immaculately clean when you're producing it for the raw market. And then even without meaning to, they may produce something that isn't safe. And how sad is that? You read my mind. That's where I was actually going was about yeah, the Raw Milk Institute, which Mark McAfee had established, or Raw Me, as it's known as. And the website for it is rawmilkinstitute.net. That's exactly what it's for, is making it legal so we can get the safest raw milk. So certainly raw milk and milk, that's one of the forbidden foods, salt, cholesterol, I think another forbidden food that certainly is loved by a lot of meat eaters is bacon. Are you looking at doing one on pork and on bacon for the forbidden foods? Well, why not? I think that's a great idea. I hadn't specifically thought about that. But yes, bacon, the gateway meat, I think that would be a wonderful topic. So yeah, it's going on the list. Thank you, Aaron. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great one. And it's also, it's important to know really how to cook bacon the right way because a lot of these bacons that you see in the stores, they have certain preservatives like that recent article that Kayla Daniels had published about the celery salt and how that can form nitrates. So really the best way is cure the bacon yourself. Stanley Fishman has a great recipe for the artisanally cured bacon. You just buy some uncured bacon and you put it in apple juice and some salts and spices. 
Right, get that pork belly and have at it. And you can buy it in local farmer's markets. If you've got a farmer's market around, I know uh, Family Farms has sold uncured pork belly from time to time, and I've, I've done my own curing with that. You can make pancetta or you can make bacon, you know, unsmoked bacon, or you can do bacon bacon and smoke it if you've got a smoker. There's lots of things you can do. Right, that's usually the best. I mean, the other thing, which I would say the second best, is uh, U.S. Wellness Meats. They have a sugar-free bacon where it's just cured in sea salt and no other preservatives. So bacon certainly another forbidden food, and it's a great source of saturated fat. And done right, it's a great food to eat in order to get your fat-soluble vitamins. But there's a common theme with all of these forbidden foods. You do still have to get them prepared the right way. Well, exactly. That is, I, I have for a long time in my lecturing and speaking and all of that, I think about things as a spectrum. There's a spectrum of quality, and they're all called the same thing. Like milk is called milk, whether it's pasteurized, ultra-pasteurized, in fact, and comes from a CAFO farm, from cows that live a short life, that are pumped full of RBST to make sure they do the most milk possible, and they live a short, miserable life. And that's called milk, just like the stuff is that comes from organic pastures, where the cows live a long, productive life. They're not over-milked. They're not kept pregnant all the time. They're eating grass and so on and so on. And they're both called milk. So I think part of my role as a Western Price chapter leader and part of the role of the foundation in general and more people is more people not necessarily associated with the foundation but that are interested in the same things come online is educating people about the difference so it's less confusing. It's like, yep, called the same thing. Nope, not the same thing. Get a grip. It's not milk. Sorry. Or whatever. You know, it's not it's not bacon. It's not really. It's just it's that stuff that looks kinda like bacon and tastes like it, but once you really tasted bacon that's from a, a pig that's raised outdoors and fed vegetables and it's a heritage breed, so it's not the other white meat and all of that. Now you tasted bacon. Now you know the difference. You will not be fooled again. Just like the Who song. Right. Well, I think also with some of this factory farm stuff and the food that's served in fast food restaurants, a lot of times the meat is actually only part of it. With these burgers of fast food, a lot of it actually is soy, and then the other half is meat. So you may think you're eating beef, but it's actually only a small portion of it. Oh, yeah, the extenders. Jeez, Louise. Yes. Extenders, pink slime. So there's a lot of stuff where I'm somewhere in the grounds of it. Yeah, it starts with beef, but then it kind of extends to something that's you're really not getting as much of the meat as you think you are. Right. And you're not getting the nutrition that should be coming with it. And you're not getting the flavor and you're not getting the fun. And if it isn't fun, why? Yeah. And the same thing with milk that's pasteurized is that, yeah, you're getting the milk, but you're losing some of it from the pasteurization. I think that goes really with all these foods or take like salt when you're getting the iodized salt. So the theme here is all about the processing destroys the real foods from what they really are. Right. I think that's beautifully put. Yes, exactly. Now, another forbidden food, although it's kind of coming from the other side, some say grains are forbidden, specifically breads and wheat. And what is your thought on that? Would you include that perhaps in one of the forbidden foods? You know, it's so hard to say because there's two schools of thought and then a middle road kind of slowly developing here. The more vegetarian-based school of thought that is, is certainly dominant in today's world, although it's funny how, how few people in the country actually are vegetarian when you look statistically, but it's a lion's share of the news, let's put it that way. But a lot of people 
are definitely all about grain. And like, no, 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 grain, grain should be one of the foundations of the diet. Even the food plate, the USDA's plate, ideally divided up, still has a fair amount of grain on it. And then you have the paleo people who are saying no. And there's a lot of people, including some people that have spoken at Western Price Conference and a lot of very popular people saying, no, grain is very late addition to the diet. We didn't really include it in the human diet until about 10,000 years ago, about the same time dairy came in, in fact. Recent addition, we're not designed to digest it. But then you have, I do go back to Dr. Price, who found a number of cultures that he studied that were healthy, the, the 14 group of uh, non-industrialized peoples. There were a chunk of them that had grain in their diet. However, they prepared it very carefully. They soaked it, or they sprouted it, or they sourdough leavened it, and aged it in such a way that it broke down some of the digestive inhibitors and released the nutrients that are bound up in the whole grain. So, in my enthusiasm, say, as a macrobiotic eater, I would take a handful of millet and throw it in a pot with some water and cook it up and eat it and think that I was doing myself some good. And I didn't realize that it was going to be really hard to digest because the phytic acid that protected that seed from sprouting before it was time for it to do it was still bound up in the seed and it couldn't really be broken down so my body wasn't going to be able to assimilate the nutrients. So anyway, so for me, my journey has been when I, joined, when I started following a Western Price diet, I'd had so much grain for so long that I really pretty much eliminated all grain for about two years grain, beans, all of that. And I just focused on vegetables and ferments and meat and dairy and uh, maybe not even so much root vegetables like potatoes. I really focused on non-starchy vegetables. But over the years and recently, I'm on a total sourdough bread kick. So I grind my own grain fresh and I've got a good sourdough culture and I'm eating bread with lovely grass-fed butter and I find that I'm, I feel better after a meal. My, my satiety is higher now. I sort of got to the point where I started to need to introduce grains again. So I think it's always important to listen to our bodies and not to do anything, anything based on theory. That to me is my was one of my key things that I've learned over the years because I do think of my body as my lab. I'm, I'm not going to recommend something to somebody based on articles or based on just what I read online or scholarly articles, I need to test it out for myself. I need to talk to other people who have tested it to see, does this seem to work? Is this valid? So anyway, so I'm finding that for me, reintroducing carbs has been highly beneficial to the way my metabolism works, to my, the way my brain works, all of that, and that keeping the carbs super low hasn't worked for me. There's a lot of people that feel very differently about that. Where are you on that spectrum these days? Actually, I'm similar way. I've tried going grain-free and going carb-free, and I find that I need some form of grains and of carbs that I can't do the full paleo. So like you, I find that I need some types of that, but I need to do it properly sourced of, like you said, the sprouted and fermented grains. So I do a lot of sourdough, and also I like to have it preferably from an alternative grain, such as a spelt or a kamut or an einkorn. So I'm the same way, and I know other people are too, because I know Chris Nastrodon talked about how he went gluten-free for a long time and he didn't feel better. So I think that's a great point that you bring up that every person 
is different. And ultimately, you have to listen to what your own body says, like Hannah Crum of Kombucha Camp says, trust your gut. So what you really need to do is I think, you know, when you read like Dr. Price and these other people is you see the general principles, but each person is different. So everything works a little bit different for that person. We've got to, I think it's, we need to rediscover our own innate wisdom because we've lost it. We absolutely, we've been between going away from our traditional diets with the availability of packaged and processed foods with the loss over the last generation or two of home cooking as a way of being and all of that, and so many adulterated, flavored, artificially enhanced foods on the market, many of us, far too many people, have simply forgotten what food tastes like. So there's not a, a basis to evaluate. We've sort of lost that, some of us, not all of us, some people get it right away, but some of us have lost that innate intuition for, oh, Oh, this is what my body needs now. I need more now, and we need to we need to rediscover that, don't you think? Absolutely. So I think that's a good point to close on. We have to go to our desserts in a second, but before we go, let the listeners know where they can find out more information about the West LA Santa Monica Western Price Chapel. Well, we have a Facebook page. So the Facebook page is Wise Traditions Los Angeles, and you can go there and just see a general postings. I post issues of interest to the Western Price community as well as when we're having meetings. You can also, if you are very, if you're already involved in Western Price or would like to be more involved, we have a Facebook group also, which is Western Price Los Angeles, but it's a private group, so you need to request to join it, but I'm not interested in excluding people. If you want to join the group, come on board. And I'm rebuilding the website, so I'm not going to give that out right now because it will be a disappointing experience for anybody reading it until I, until I get it fixed up. But I'll let you know when it's live and you can let your listeners know. Oh, absolutely. I'd be glad to let the listeners know when the site is back up. Well, Victoria, thank you so much. Great to have you here. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. As I discussed earlier in the show with my guest, Victoria, Day Day's Best Beef Ever will be holding its open house next Saturday. You'll have a chance to tour the farm plus take classes from people such as Victoria, as well as Day-Day's co-owner Adriana De Bruin, Santa Barbara chapter co-leader Katie Falbo, and many others. Various topics are being covered, including making fermented foods, the GAPS diet, backyard chickens, and selecting your farmer. For more information, visit Day-Day's webpage at bestbeefever.com. Also, Tomorrow at 1 p.m., the Culture Club 101 in Pasadena will be starting its GAPS cooking series. The first class will involve learning how to make broths, sauces, and soups. To register, go online at cultureclub101.com. And finally, the trial for raw dairy farmer Vernon Hirschberger has begun. The outcome of this trial could affect food buying clubs all over the country. You can help donate to his legal defense or in support of the Grow Your Own Freedom movement by going to the website farmfoodfreedom.org. For a more detailed list of events, check out the Weston A. Price Pasadena community calendar at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. We'll continue with more Meaty May next week as my guest will be Dr. Deborah Gordon. 
For more information on my show and my guests, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com. Okay, well, I'll, uh...